servants, servants that are approved, tested, and acceptable, that everyone here would be able to say and hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, that's our heart's desire, that everyone would be a disciple, a follower of you, serving you, and making other disciples. Father, bless us now as we look at your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, now last Sunday we looked at two things about the approved servant. We looked at the, the approved servant chooses substance. And we see that in verse 14 uh, where Paul says, Of these things, put them in remembrance. And that word remembrance, Paul is telling them uh, they need to re be reminded what really counts, what's really Im important, what's substance. And when he says put in remembrance, he's referring back to previous things. Uh, things like in verse 1, the grace found in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, uh, the teaching and doctrines of Paul. He re says, remember these things, put them in remembrance of them, what I've taught. And then in verse 8, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. I mean, that's the gospel. And then we see in verse 10, salvation and the coming eternal glory. And then Paul, uh, in that verse, as they choose things of substance, that means that they're going to have to step away from the worthless stuff. You know, the world offers a boatload of worthless stuff. I mean, we just have to watch a few advertisements to see that. Uh, I mean, go in the stores. There's just stuff everywhere. And we have to choose substance. Remember Mary and Martha? We looked at them, uh, the two sisters, Martha preparing the meal. And remember where Mary was? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. And Jesus told Martha, when she began to fuss, that Mary wasn't helping out. Uh, he said, Martha, Mary has chosen the good part. And it's not going to be taken from her. So we need to realize, we need to choose substance. We don't need to accept every invitation. Choose what really counts. It's what Nehemiah did on the wall when he had the uh, adversaries come and say, why don't you come down here so we can talk and negotiate? Nehemiah said, I'm going to stay at the work. You guys just get out of here. Uh, so the approved servant chooses substance. Uh, the second thing we saw last week is that the approved servant is diligent with the word of God. You look at verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, so there Paul says, study, be diligent. And that word study, in some translations put it as diligent. Uh, that word means to make haste to do something, to hurry to do it, and then when you do it, to exert yourself completely. Spare, hold nothing back. And Paul says, be diligent to show yourself. And then he said, with that, to be visible. Uh, be visible in your diligence, presenting it to God. Your know, faith is visible. And we looked at the heroes of faith. Uh, Noah. He was visible with his faith. I mean, he worked on that ark every day. 
uh, a structure that began to emerge that was testifying who God was, what's coming. Abraham, his faith was visible. God told him to leave his home, and he did. Rahab made her faith visible when she chose to hide and protect the spies. And with that visibility and diligence, we need to take the test and pass the test. That's what approved is, being the approved servant in verse 15. You know, David was willing to do that. He told God, Lord, examine me. Try me. Uh, see who I really am. Uh, he's willing to take that test, and, and, and God found him uh, to be genuine. Apostle John in his letter, 1 John, says, Little children, abide in him, Jesus, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You see, Paul's warning Timothy, Timothy, be diligent, make haste, you know, be into God's word, be a, a, an approved workman that passes a test, and then John adds that reminder because we, uh, we don't want to be ashamed when Christ comes. Paul says you don't want to be lacking and, and, and be ashamed when you're examined before God. Some Christians are going to get to heaven and know nothing about the Bible. I mean, that's sad. And uh, probably be some uh, great saints up there just going to shake your head wondering what, what were you doing? Be diligent. Study God's word. And that's why uh, he, Paul goes on to say, rightly dividing the word of truth. Get into God's word. Know it. Study it. Man, we have multiple resources today. No excuse to be an ignorant Christian. And yet the more technology and everything we have, it seems like the more ignorant we are becoming of the Bible. Losing uh, key truths and doctrines. Um, just spiritual, biblical ignorance. I remember Dr. Hendricks uh, once talking to us at seminary and, and telling us that, uh, he says, you guys need to do your best. I mean, these 80% uh, uh, scores on tests and stuff and papers are not acceptable. Uh, he says, if you went to a brain surgeon, you'd expect that guy to get 90% plus. You want him to do really good stuff. Uh, Dr. Steve, did you do good in school? Okay, okay, okay. He is a good surgeon. We do know that. Put the poor guy, put the, put the poor guy in the spot there. But he, he said, Wait, but you did study hard, right? Yeah, okay, okay. So he put in the effort. And that's what you have to do. I mean, uh, he told us, you guys better put in the effort and do the best you can. Hold nothing back because he says, your, your work's really more important than a brain surgeon. You're dealing with eternity. And so it is with God's people. So be diligent with the things of the word of God. Okay, let's continue in our verses. The third characteristic of an approved servant is that they have a heart for godliness. Look at verse 16. But shun, shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur, he says, uh, false teaching provides no defense against iniquity. 
False teaching provides no strength for doing what is right and God-honoring. It just doesn't do that. It won't. In fact, false teaching leads to ungodliness. That's what Paul's pointing out to Timothy. The opening word of verse 16 uh, is pointing us back to the previous verse. But, in other words, we got the contrast of handling accurately the word of God and the warning to avoid profane and vain babblings. Uh, later in the book of Titus, Paul will give a similar warning. In Titus 3, uh, verse 9, he tells Titus, but avoid foolish questions, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. So Timothy is to expound and study the word of truth. He is to use all effort to present himself approved unto God. And he is to step away, shun profane and vain babblings. Now, earlier when Paul made a missionary trip, he had warned the leaders at Ephesus what would happen. I want you to turn back to Acts, book of Acts, chapter 20. Book of Acts, chapter 20. And in verse 17, uh, Luke tells us that, and from uh, Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. That's Paul. So he called the leadership of the church. And then we pick up in verse 28. Here he's talking to the leadership. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, pastors, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. Uh, so earlier, Paul had been there in Ephesus, talked uh, to the leaders there, the pastors, and the work there. And now he's writing Timothy, the wolves have come. They are there, and they are filled with profane and vain babblings. Now, profane, uh, it refers to a threshold over which everyone treads. It speaks of that which is unhallowed and common. Uh, now, everyone here, hopefully you got a front door to your house. You step over that front, that threshold every day as you go in your house. That is a common thing. Uh, nothing holy about it or special. That's a threshold. It's just common. John Phillips says it describes related to people, it describes those who have no feeling for God. They're profane. A vain babblings means a discussion of useless things. It refers to words that are not only empty, but words that actually lend themselves to actual evil. So, so realize that vain babblings are not just merely empty words. Now, here's a physical truth. 
Nature abhors a vacuum. If there's a vacuum, something's going to fill it. And that's the way physical law works. Morally, it is the same. You're going to be filled with something. You're just not going to be neutral. You're either going to be filled with good or we're going to be filled with evil. One or the two. And so these empty words, they're not just a vacuum. They're filled with evil. That's what comes into them. They have evil content, evil purpose. And Paul says the result is, in verse 16, they increase unto more ungodliness. It brings a growth in that. Um, now, uh, ungodliness speaks of an attitude that has no reverence, no respect for God. In fact, they even, uh, ungodliness even def has defiance towards God. I want us to see some biblical examples. I'll save your spot here in 2 Timothy, but turn back to Psalm 73. Turn back to the book of Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, uh, this is a psalm of Asaph. It's not by David. It's a wisdom psalm. Uh, truly great depth is shown in it. But I want to read the first 12 verses and notice the people Asaph is looking at and describing. He begins, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my, my feet almost were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain violence covereth them as a garment their eyes stand out with fatness they have more than heart could wish they are corrupt speak wickedly concerning oppression they speak loftily they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth therefore as people return hither and waters of a full cup are run out to them and they say how doth God know and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Doesn't that describe our time? That describes the wicked, the ungodly of today. And, and Asaph has marvelous insights. He says, man, that, that, that bothered him. These people seem to have all the good stuff. And here we're living righteous lives and, and the righteous suffer. Why is that? And he fussed over that and he thought about talking with others and he said, well, I'll just keep this to myself. And he said, I did not understand until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then he understood. He saw their end. It is destruction. And they're gone in a moment. But take a look at the rest of Psalm 73. It is beautiful. 
That's the ungodly. Peter, when he writes in his second letter, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, that God uh, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. See, Peter says, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're an example. You want to choose to live ungodly like they did? That's what's coming. Jesus in Matthew 24. Jesus himself says, But as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Remember the days of Noah? Genesis 6, they're described. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Jesus says, when he returns, it's going to be like that. Uh, Dr. John Phillips, he says of these words of Jesus in Matthew 24. He says, the Lord declared that conditions on earth at the time of his return will parallel conditions on earth in the days of Noah. And he goes on to point out that Luke 17 indicates that the days before the Lord's return will also parallel the days of Lot. Noah lived in a pornographic society. Lot lived in a perverted society. And both are hallmarks of today. That's Dr. John Phillips. That's our time. Ungodliness. But the approved servant is godly has a heart for godliness. And it's interesting, when you look at Paul's other letters, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, that word godliness doesn't show up. But in the pastoral letters, Timothy and Titus, it does. You go back to 1 Timothy, chapter 1, no, chapter 2, verse 2. Paul exhorts that prayers be made for rulers and kings, all in authority, that verse 2, that they would uh, lead a quiet, peaceful life in, in all godliness. Uh, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 16, he says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And in chapter 4, uh, verse 7, but refuse profane and old wise fables. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Verse 8, bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. We see it in chapter 6 also. Uh, verse 3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. Uh, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, so, so the word dominates through these letters. Godliness speaks of piety, reverence, Likeness to God. 
it is closely related to righteousness. Righteousness has more to do with character. Godliness has more to do with conduct. Jesus, of course, had both. But in John 8, he, he tells those who opposed him, he says, I do always those things that please him, the Father. That's godliness. Action. His actions pleased uh, the Father. Uh, William Barclay, like what he says, he says, godliness, Eusebius, the Greek word, he says, this is the reverence of the man who never ceases to be aware that all life is lived in the presence of God. That's godliness. It's an awareness that every aspect of our life is lived in God's presence. That he's always present. I mean, we need, we need to have a Jacob experience. Remember Jacob, the son of Isaac? The uh, Bible tells us in Genesis that he left uh, Beersheba uh, and, and was heading to Haran. And as he was going on his journey, he made camp, and that's where he piled up a bunch of stones for a pillow. I always wondered why he chose stones. We found something else. But he piled up those stones for a pillow. And remember the dream he had? He saw a ladder coming out of heaven, angels going up and down. And then God spoke to him and re, uh, reaffirmed the commitment, the covenant to him that he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and that the land he is laying on is going to be his, that he'll have descendants like the dust and that all the earth will be blessed through him. Jacob wakes up at the end of that experience and says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. He had a new awareness of God's presence. And we need that. We need to be aware that God is present. Remember years ago, we looked at uh, a study seeing the unseen Christ. And just kind of gave some things to be aware of. You know, a lot of times we think, well, you know, God's not doing really much in my life. But sometimes we overlook what he's doing. Here's some things to watch for. Any obvious answer to prayer. That's God's presence. Any unexpected evidence of his care. It might be as simple as someone getting you a cup of coffee. That's God's presence. Any unusual linkage or timing. You know, I'm surprised sometimes when I pull in a parking lot, I get a spot right up front. That's God's presence. You know, stuff like that. I remember one time I was hauling, oh yeah, I had to pick up some oil. I've got a canopy in my truck, and, and it had been raining hard. And I said, well, I'm going to make a run for it. And the rain stopped for about 30 minutes. Enough for me to get that stuff in the back end and get to Dad's house. And I thought, that's God's presence. Any unusual linkage or timing, any help to do his work in the world, that's God's presence. 
reading your Bible daily and realizing you are meeting a person, Jesus Christ. Walking daily with a sense of wonder, looking at the world through those eyes. God's presence. Lots of godly people in the Bible. We look at Hezekiah in Second Chronicles. He is described uh, with these words. Thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God. Action. Job. You know, Job, that, that book begins in verse 1, chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God, and I like this description, and excused evil. Man, that's great. He excused evil. Kind of think of a skewer, just take care of that stuff. I don't know if that's what it means, but I like that. Luke 6. Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, godly. They lived in awareness of God's presence. Godly. That's an approved servant. The fourth one, uh, the approved servant has a faith that stands on truth. Verse 17, back in 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, their word will eat as a canker. He names these two characters, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So Paul is telling us that, that as God's people, we need to be a people that stand on truth. We need a people that stand on the truth of Jesus, that stand on the truth of his word. If you remember earlier in the Ephesian letter in chapter 6, he told them, well, let's just look at chapter 6. Take, turn back to Ephesians. Chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 12 tells us it's not against flesh and blood. Verse 13, take the whole armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So stand. We stand firm. And we do that by rightly dividing the word of truth, shunning the profane, Standing on the resurrection. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, he says, religious deceptions are so infectious, malicious, and insidious that they are to be handled only with protective mask and gloves. I like that. Uh, in other words, you almost need a hazmat suit when you handle this stuff. And for the Christian... What is our hazmat suit to deal with false doctrine? It's the armor of God. 
Put it on. And notice the first piece is loins girt about with truth. That's the first one. Truth ties everything together. Then righteousness, the breastplate, feet with the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, God's word, and prayer. Now Paul says to Timothy, the danger of false teaching. Here's the hazard. It spreads like gangrene. And their word will eat as doth a canker. Uh, the word will eat. Uh, literally, it'll have pasture. They'll settle, it'll settle in just like a fat cow grazing in a green field. And it'll just keep on growing. That will eat implies growth. It just keeps spreading like a fire. You know, fire does. It just keeps consuming. And that's the picture. Uh, the other image of verse 17 is that it eats like a canker. A and the word that it comes from is gangrena, from which we get gangrene. Uh, I think Dr. Steve, you would tell us gangrene is not stuff to fool around with. Uh, if it's not dealt with, it's going to kill you. It's deadly. Mean, the word, verb means to gnaw, to eat. So this stuff spreads quickly and, and is dangerous. And, and Paul names two of these characters spreading it, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. I like the fact that Paul named names. Uh, we don't know much about them. The people of that time, they did. But I like that. He doesn't beat around the bush in uh, cloaked niceties. He says, here's two characters. Here's their names. Watch out for them. Tell you what, we need to name the enemy. Whether, whether it's a person or a religion or whatever, throw it out there. It's life and death. And then the second danger is that it destroys the faith of others. Verse 18. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 1 Timothy. He shipwrecked the faith of other people. Here they're overthrowing the faith of some. And here in our passage, that word overthrow overturned the faith of some. Uh, these are people that didn't have a saving faith. But a shallow faith that was upended. Remember Jesus in the parable of the sower said, you know, God's word is like a man that sows seed. And that seed falls on different kinds of ground. Some of it falls by the wayside. Birds come and get it. He says, like Satan, come along and takes it up. And he says, some of it falls on stony ground, a little bit of dirt, but stone underneath. The seed gets in there, sprouts right up, and then the sun comes out and it, well, it gets fried. No depth. That's like some of these people. Some stuff started to take root. And then these false teachers came along. And, and it just seared them. Their faith crumbled up. Was not a saving faith. So important for you and, and me to place our faith completely in Jesus Christ. Don't hold anything back. Give it all to him. 
Because he'll completely keep us in his hand. He says, I hold you in my hand. And no one can take you out. Now prevent our faith from being overthrown. The Great Hymn in Christ Alone by Keith Getty. You know, the first and last verses speak to this. In Christ alone my faith, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. And in that last verse, no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. Make sure you have a saving faith. Completely in Christ. And we see somehow these two attacked the resurrection. You know, same thing happened in Corinth. Paul in that marvelous 15th chapter of Corinthians says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you say that? And he goes on to give a long list. If Christ isn't risen, here's what happens. Dr. MacArthur says, to deny or distort the truth about the resurrection is to deny and distort the heart of the gospel. He's right. We are a resurrection people. We stand on the resurrection of Christ. That's what's different about us and all other religions. In fact, our faith stands on the resurrection. You know, Paul in Romans 10, verse 9, he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Notice the two things. Confession with the mouth, belief in the heart that he is resurrected. Our faith stands on that. Be the approved servant. I want us to ask ourselves, am I that approved servant? Am I choosing substance? By making wise choices, choosing worthy stuff. Am I diligent with God's word? Am I living a godly life? And is my faith standing on truth? That's the approved servant. Go bring Al and Carrie. Sheila, come back up. Bring our team back up. What is God speaking to our heart today? 
look at each of those areas. Choosing substance, choosing wisely. Things that will matter in eternity. Being diligent about God's word. Having a heart for godliness. Strong faith. It's one of those areas kind of weak today and we just need, Lord, I need your help in this area. He'll do that. If you need to come to the altar and pray, just give to him, he'll help you do that. You come. Let's stand as we sing our invitation.